Good morning. Uh, my name is Paul. For those of you who don't know me, uh, we really appreciate you guys coming today and uh, worshiping with us and being here to hear God's word and see what God has for us today, um, despite all the uncertainty and stuff that's going on, not just in Tallahassee, but in the U.S. and the world. And um, we'll spend some time in prayer at the end for that as well. But um, it's a privilege and an honor for me to open God's word with you today and to to see what it is that the Lord wants to tell us from our text in Jacob 20, uh, Jacob 28, <laughs> Genesis 28. Uh, that's not a good start. <laughs> Genesis 28. We'll read the passage uh, and then I'll pray uh, for understanding and then we'll talk about it. So starting from verse 1, <clears throat> then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night, because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it. And said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up as a pillar, shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will give a full tense to you. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you give us today what you have prepared for us, that you open our minds and our hearts to receive that we may be humble 
to both acknowledge your word and to change our lives to live in accordance with it. We also ask that you would guard me from error and that you would preserve my words, that they may convict, inspire, and encourage your church here today, and that we may do all these things for your glory. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So just as a refresher to put us in context here, remember that we just finished reading about uh, Isaac and Jacob and Esau, and what Jacob did both to Isaac and to Esau um, in terms of his sort of deceiving kind of mindset and personality. So first, his famished brother comes to him asking for food, and in response to that, he gives him food, but he offers to trade the food for the birthright. So he essentially cons Esau out of his birthright at the first, and then later he deceives his father Isaac by pretending to be Esau in order to receive the special blessing from him. So we saw that in the last couple of chapters, and then now we see that Jacob is leaving to go get a wife back from uh, his home people. So we're actually going to focus on verses 10 and following, and then uh, in a later week, Lance is going to come back to the first nine verses. But um, So just, just to get stock of the background here, Jacob deceives Isaac, Jacob deceives Esau, he takes the blessing and the birthright that were not his, um, and he has sort of this really self-centered personality and strive in life. And then he leaves his family to go get a wife from his home people. And this, this is where God reveals himself to Jacob. So this is uh, the bulk of what we're going to talk about. And in our morning today, I'm going to try to draw three interesting themes and lessons that God teaches Jacob in this uh, special revelation here um, so you might have seen this or read this before, maybe seen it illustrated in children's Bibles, the ladder with the angels going up and down. You might think like, what's going on here? Um, we'll talk about that and we'll try to make sense of what God is doing here with Jacob. So the first lesson, the first thing that we need to understand here, the first thing that God is teaching Jacob comes from, we first need to remember that the way we think about monotheism, the way we think about God and the nature of God and the character of God We've got the benefit of 2,000 years of church history and tradition. We've seen the ways that people have erred in the past, the mistakes they've made, and so we can avoid that. So when we think about God, we think that God is omnipresent, omnipotent, all these kinds of things, that God isn't spatially bound. Um, People, especially Abraham and Isaac, they were learning to relate to God in a new way. They came from a pagan background, they came from a pagan culture, and God literally removed Abraham from that context to teach him his character. And so the way that they're learning about God, the way that they're learning about God's nature and character specifically um, is, is growing, it's expanding. So there's, there's going to be some novel lessons here. So Jacob may have been prone to some of the misconceptions of the peoples that he came from, ancient Near Eastern peoples. So one of the ways that ancient Near Eastern people groups thought about God or gods and their local deities was that they were bound to particular places and they had jurisdiction over certain lands and certain cities and certain villages such that if you moved outside of those lands, outside of those cities, then you were no longer under the protection of the deity or under the God. So one thing that Jacob might be thinking here in leaving his home, leaving Isaac, leaving the place where God is was, now that I'm gone, now that I'm off on my own trying to find a wife, God may not be with me because God is with Isaac. God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and God is over there, but I'm over here so God is not with me. So the fact that God shows up and shows 
uh, Jacob, this revelation is God shattering that kind of cultural presupposition that God is not spatially or temporally located or bound to a city or a village or a land. God is not merely like the Lord of a specific piece of property. God is Lord of everything. And so God's jurisdiction is everything and everywhere. And so Jacob is protected not only when he's home with Isaac, but when he's out on his own as well, because that land is God's. Every single inch of creation is God. So, so an assumption like this might be commonplace for us today, um, but it might not have been commonplace at the start. And so one thing that God might be teaching Jacob is this idea. He's shattering this assumption that lots of Near Eastern people groups might have had, and that Jacob most likely inherited that God is not tied to a particular place, that his jurisdiction is not tied only to a particular place. So this is God shattering that assumption with this experience, that God is not just local. So leaving the house of Isaac does not mean that he's leaving God. God is still with him. God still reigns and rules uh, every single piece of land uh, outside of where Isaac is. So I think that's, that's the first thing. That's one reason that God is giving Jacob this revelation. Um, Another lesson, another thing that's being shown here, I think, is related but slightly uh, different. So imagine Jacob thinking about his current plight. Where he's coming from is not a very good place in terms of he's just committed some really horrible things. He deceived Esau. He deceived his father Isaac. He's really self-centered. He's really selfish. He's really just, he's trying to get as much as he can, squeeze as much as he can out of the people around him, out of the situations that he's in. And it's certainly reasonable for him to think that the covenant that God made with Abraham and his father Isaac is not the kind of thing that's going to extend to him because he's not living in accordance with what God would have wanted. By cheating his brother, by deceiving his father, he might have thought that he was putting himself outside the boundaries of the covenant so that while God is the God of Abraham, God is the God of Isaac, he may not be the God of Jacob. So when God shows up in this personal way, and shows Jacob the ladder with, him, with God standing at the top of the ladder, uh, this would have served to shatter that assumption as well. So not only is God the God of Abraham, not only is God the God of Isaac, but all through the Old Testament and the New Testament, when God reveals himself to his people Israel, he refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jacob is included as one of the patriarchs, despite his sin, despite his deception, despite his manipulation. When God reveals himself to Moses, he says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When Stephen was giving his speech to those who were persecuting him in the New Testament, he refers to God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Jacob, despite all of what he's done, despite all the deception, God is not cutting him off from the promise. God is not excluding him from the covenant. So we tend to think of the old covenant as being somehow contrasted with the covenant of grace. The grace is something that comes along only in the New Testament in the person of Christ, but this shows that that assumption is unfounded, that grace was there from the start. Both Old Testament and New Testament, God's covenants, all of God's works and interactions with his people are infused and suffused with grace. That the Old Covenant is conditional, but it's still a covenant that has grace because God chooses Abraham when it was nothing in Abraham that drew God to him. Abraham was not special. Noah was not special. Isaac was not special. Jacob was not special. They had nothing in and of themselves that warranted God making a covenant with them. Nothing drew God to these particular people. These were all fallen, broken vessels like every single other person. 
So thinking of the old covenant contrasted with the new covenant of grace is not quite right. We see from this passage that God picks people and his picking is itself grace. And even when they err and sin and fall away in the same way that Jacob does, God doesn't necessarily cut people off. His inclusion of Jacob is a testament to the grace that he has for people both in the Old Testament times and now as well. So the same applies with us. One thing that we can pull away here that God is present with us in ways that we don't deserve. Nothing that we did warrants God wanting to initiate uh, relationships with us, blessing us, doing anything for us. Nothing draws God to us. God does everything out of sheer grace in the same way that he's using Isaac there. So God teaches Jacob about grace, extends grace to him, and includes him in the covenant and makes Jacob one of the ways by which he reveals himself to people later on in the Old Testament by being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So let's look specifically at what God promises about uh, the covenant. What are the, what are the things that God promises and reiterates from the covenant with Abraham? We see three things specifically. The first is that God promises land. He promises a specific tangible element. So God's promise to Israel, God's promise to Abraham and the Jewish people is one that has a tangible dimension, has this tangible element. That there's a physical land and that this land is the source of both blessings to Israel but also the source of strife later on in the Old Testament. When Israel is in Egypt, they constantly cry out to be brought back to the land, not just because the land is, not just because they are in Egypt is a terrible place, but because the land is the place that God has promised to give them and to bless them in. And it's where Israel is in that land that God has promised to give them those blessings. And so that's where everything is right with the world. So there's a specific tangible element to the covenant um, that God promises to Abraham and reiterates here with Jacob as well. So we have the land. What do we also have? We also have descendants. God promises many descendants to Jacob. So many descendants here is an indication of power and influence. That God promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he's going to give them a nation. That this people group is not just going to be a tribe wandering around the desert. God's going to give them a nation and a culture of their own with many, many descendants. And that indicates that it's not going to be Uh, easily overrun. It's not going to be easily snuffed out. It's not going to be easily shaped by culture. They're going to shape culture. It's not going to easily succumb to external influences, false religious and ethical practice. All of this is sort of included in the many descendants promise. And what's ironic is that despite God promising that he will give Israel lots of descendants to do all these things, time and time again, they do fall into uh, religious malpractice. They do fall into idolatry. They do fall into poor ethical practice. They fall away from God time and time again, despite him giving them land, despite him giving them uh, many descendants and the ability to live as a people of their own. God's providing them these resources, and yet they still fall prey to external influences, negative external influences, time and time again. That's the story of Israel in the Old Testament. So we've got the land. We've got the descendants that God promises Jacob. We also have, I think the third one here is most important. God promises that the offspring of Jacob is going to bless the world. So there's a global dimension to this promise. And I think here actually the first two parts of the covenant, the land and the descendants, are working to provide the third piece. That the land and the descendants are there to ensure the way that God is going to save the world. So in Galatians 3, Paul uses the wording of the covenant 
uh, specifically that God promises a specific offspring to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a specific seed rather than a plurality of offsprings and seeds. And this offspring, this seed, is going to bless the world and is going to be a blessing to all nations. And Paul and Christians have interpreted this as this is the Old Testament pointing forwards to Jesus, that the offspring of Israel that's going to save the world is Jesus Christ. So God gives Israel the land. God gives Israel the descendants. God creates a culture and a people to himself, not as an end in and of itself, but as a conduit to give the Messiah to the world. So all of this from the start, it's not God picking Israel and then choosing Israel and the Gentiles later. It's God's plan from the beginning was to provide a conduit through which the Savior of the world was going to come. And that conduit itself was Israel. So God gives them the land, God gives them the descendants, and all of this is setting up from the start the grand narrative of redemption that God was going to bring all peoples to himself through Christ. And that it's not just about Israel. Israel here is is the conduit for God's promise to the world. So we have the land, we have the descendants, and we have the global blessing in the form of Jesus Christ. So this covenant that God makes with Abraham and Isaac, and now is reiterating with Jacob, is itself world-changing. Because not only is God promising the birth of a nation from this small family, God is promising to save and bless the world through this group of people. That there is a unique um, presence and there's a unique kind of blessing that's going to come about because of this small backwoods tribe in um, what, what comes to be known as Israel. So it's world-changing and God includes Jacob in this covenant. God doesn't cut Jacob off despite his sin, despite his being unworthy. And this shows that this kind of grace is radical. It's radical because it's undeserving, it's unmerited favor. Jacob is definitely not a worthy recipient of what God is doing here. So Jacob would have thought that he is being cut off, that he's, because of what he did, both to Esau and Isaac, that he would naturally just not be a part of what God is doing. But by giving Jacob this dream, by showing him himself, God is reaffirming Jacob's place alongside Abraham and Isaac as one of the patriarchs. So we have the first two lessons. The third lesson, I think, is um, it's more interesting because I'm an academic and it's got lots of history in it, so this is fun. Uh, so you might have seen the ladder illustrated. You might have wondered what exactly is going on here. The word ladder actually is not the best translation. So scholars have um, argued about this. A better way of thinking about what the ladder is, is a staircase. And so some translations might even use staircase or passageway. And it's a term that was used in other ancient Near Eastern texts to illustrate uh, just passageways or staircases in general. So we talked earlier about how ancient Near Eastern peoples might have had different presuppositions about the world and God or gods. One other area where they might have had different presuppositions and assumptions about the world is in how they saw how the world was structured. So if we could put the first slide up. Of course, I'm going to use slides. Uh, there may be a pop quiz after as well. So what we see here is a lot of ancient Near Eastern people saw the world as layered in three tiers. There was a human layer where humans live and animals, and, and then there was a, an underworld layer where the dead were, and then there was the heavenly realm where God, angels, and spirits lived. And the world was actually set up in these three layers. So this staircase was connecting two of the layers, two of the realms, the earthly realm and the realm of the divine or the heavenly realm. Where else do we see this? We see this in Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel. 
Um, second slide. So we see the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was an attempt a, to build a tower to reach the heavenly realm from the earthly realm to communicate with the gods. And more specifically, in the Babylonian text and the Mesopotamian text from this era, these sorts of buildings, these ziggurats as they were called, were places where the divine beings could come down and commune with people. There are Babylonian texts about Babylonian kings climbing the staircases, touching their heads to the heavens and achieving eternal life and communing with the gods and becoming immortal. Um, and so one of the reasons why God disbands the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 was this kind of audacity, this kind of uh, self-exaltation, this way of we're going to try to reach God on our own merit, on our own power, and it's a kind of self-serving uh, attempt to access the deity or the divinity. And so because of that, God scatters people. God um, disbands the Tower of Babel. But what we see in the Tower of Babel, that same kind of building, that same kind of structure is probably what's being referenced here in Genesis 28. So the staircase, the ladder, is something that was often on these ziggurats, on these towers, which you can see right there on the, um, the screen. So the staircase was how the gods would be able to come down to humanity. And so what we see here in, in, in Genesis 28 is God is the one who's initiating the staircase. God is the one who's initiating the contact with humanity. It's not something that we can do on our own. It's not something that we can open um, or access by our own strength or by our own power. God has to initiate and make himself open to us to connect with us. So what we see here is another example of God making himself known to Jacob in a unique way, but also pointing towards something greater. So this is just a glimpse of something. It's a theme that runs both through the New Testament and the Old Testament. So in 1 Chronicles 21.16, David looks up and sees the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. So here, David sees an angel literally bridging heaven and earth, connecting heaven and earth, the divine realm and the human realm, providing another point of connection between the two realms. And interestingly enough, this location is where David decides to build the temple because he sees this as a unique location of God's connection to humanity. This specific point in, in, in space was sacred in a similar way to how after Jacob sees the vision, where the angels were ascending and descending on this spot, he says, this is the house of God. This is a special connection point or meeting place between God and man. And so he sets up an altar there, he anoints it, and he consecrates it as a special meeting place between God and man. So in 1 Corinthians 21, we see this repeated kind of slightly again in the theme of the angel connecting heaven and earth. David makes this place the site of the temple because this is where heaven and earth came to meet in a unique way. This is where God met humanity in a connecting point. Again, it's initiated by God. It's something that was successful only because it's initiated by God. So both of these testaments, both of these instances in the Old Testament frame and foreshadow what's going to happen in a more full picture when Jesus comes. All of these are pointing to something that was not yet, but were foreshadowing the true, more complete, fitting, beautiful connection point between heaven and earth, between divinity and humanity. That is the person of Jesus Christ. In John 151, Jesus actually references the Genesis 28 passage and says, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, specifically making use of that language from Genesis 28, where in that passage, in Genesis 28, Jacob sees the connecting point. 
He sees God, Yahweh, standing at the top of the ladder, sending angels down to earth, communicating with earth, forming that connection point in an imperfect, incomplete way. In John, Jesus tells Nathaniel that that is me. I am that connecting point. I am the bridge between heaven and earth. I am the place where God and humanity meet in one in my body because we believe that Jesus is fully, truly God and man at the same time. In his person, heaven and earth meet in the most complete and full sense. Earlier in John 1.14, John tells us that the word, the Son of God, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and the only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. That phrase there, made his dwelling among us, some uh, translations actually get it right, it's tabernacle. God tabernacles with us in the person of Christ. So in Genesis 28, we have the connection point. We have the staircase. In David's life, we have the temple being built after. He designates a temple, then Solomon builds a temple. These are imperfect foreshadows of the connection point between God and man. And Jesus himself becomes that connection point. He becomes that new tabernacle uh, for us. So literally, God is tabernacling with us in the person of of Jesus Christ. All of these glimpses with the staircase and the angel bridging heaven and earth, marking the location of the temple, were pointing towards the further, fuller reality of the connection between humanity and divinity that literally is embodied in the person of Jesus Christ. In John 2.19, Jesus calls himself the true temple. In John 4.12, Jesus says, I am greater than Jacob. So Jacob had this vision. Jesus, J- Jacob literally saw where heaven and earth would meet. I'm greater than Jacob. I am that connection point. I am the way that God connects and communes with people and connects the divine and the human realm. In John 10, Jesus described himself as the door through which the sheep enter and find life. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through me. Again, he's the connection between God and man. He's our mediator. In other words, Jesus is the ultimate house of God. He is the literal tabernacle for us Christians now. So all of these things were hinted at both in type and in shadow from the very beginning, from Genesis. All of this was pointing beyond itself to the further, more complete reality in Jesus Christ. In John Calvin's commentary on Genesis 28, which we'll put up on the screen, he sums this up well. He connects Genesis to Jesus In this kind of way, he says, it is Christ alone who connects heaven and earth. He's the only mediator who reaches from heaven down to earth. He's the medium through which the fullness of all celestial beings, blessings, flows down to us, and through which we in turn ascend to God. It is he who, being the head over angels, causes them to minister to his earthly members. Therefore, he properly claims for himself this honor, that after he shall have been manifested in the world, angels shall ascend and descend. The similitude of a ladder well suits the mediator through whom ministering angels, righteousness, and life with all the graces of the Holy Spirit descend to us step by step. We also who were not only fixed to the earth but plunged into the depths of the curse and into hell itself can now ascend even unto God. So the staircase that's being hinted at here is Jesus and it's foreshadowing that picture to us that Jesus as the mediator not only provides access to God, he himself is the access to God. He himself is eternal life, and in his body, God and man unite. The early church fathers talked about 
The incarnation was God becoming man so that man can become God. And scripture talks about how in Christ we are partakers of divine nature. That God condescends to our level to become human so that we can embrace and partake in divinity. So there's a great exchange and that's what we see here in Genesis. All of this is being unpacked more fully in the life of Christ. So Jacob's dream foreshadows the true passageway between God and man and this foreshadows Jesus Christ. So instead of scattering people like God did in Genesis 11 when people tried in vain to approach God, God is promising here to unite all of the world through Jacob's offspring. That the offspring, the the connection point between humanity and divinity that Israel is going to give to the world, that is the unification that's going to solve the problem of Babel. That's going to unify everything that was once scattered and once lost. Just a little side note on the significance of the stone that Jacob sleeps on, which is kind of strange if you read it. It doesn't sound very comfortable. It's like, why is he doing that? Lots of commentators argue about whether he sleeps on it or whether he puts it by his head. But um, some of the church fathers talk about, because, the, because of the fact that Jacob consecrates the stone with oil, that points to the Messiah, because the Messiah is the anointed one. The practice of anointing is coming from what we're seeing here. Jacob calls this place Bethel, the house of God. So the stone might have some significance. Some Christian writers metaphorically imagine the stone as another type of Christ, that we see another picture of the incarnation, because in the vision, Yahweh stands at the top of the staircase, and the staircase is coming down to Jacob to another stone, to the rock, which is the cornerstone that is Jesus. So God is both in heaven and on earth, another foreshadowing of the incarnation, where God is both fully, Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. So another little bit of, uh, I think it's, it's a beautiful picture that we get from some of these early Christian writers of God's descension to our level to save us because of his great love being located both in heaven and on earth at the same time. So Jacob wakes up, he sees this, he consecrates the stone, he consecrates this place as a place of God, as a specific particular meeting point of God and man. He calls it the house of God, he anoints it. Despite all of this, Bethel still becomes later in the Old Testament, a place where Israel constantly and consistently sins and turns to idolatry. So in 1 Kings 13, the prophets of God cried out against the false altars of Bethel. In Hosea 10, Bethel is the undoing of Israel because of the great wickedness being performed there. And in Amos, he writes that uh, Bethel is the place where Israel went in order to transgress, where transgressions were multiplied. So It's just a stark contrast between the way that this place was designated and consecrated to be and the way that it ends up um, actualizing in the course of Israel's history. That the place where God decides to meet Jacob in a unique way and provide a connection point to humanity and gift himself and condescend to us turns out to be the place where Israel commits some of its most wicked idolatry and turning away from God. So the irony here is painful, but again, it reminds us of the imperfection of the old system that all of this is foreshadowing Christ, where Bethel and the temple and all of these old covenant meeting places were imperfect foreshadows of God's condescension and meeting with us. All of that is corrected and made perfect and more complete in the person of Jesus Christ. So in summary of the three lessons that God teaches Jacob here and that God's teaching us, God is not like the pagan gods of Mesopotamia. He's not spatio-temporally located to one particular land, to one particular city. He doesn't have ownership of one city or one land. He is owner of all. He has jurisdiction everywhere, and he will protect Jacob wherever he goes. 
Number two, that the covenant is also for Jacob, not just for Isaac and Abraham. That despite his terrible sins, God graces him by including him in the covenant and making him a benefactor of this unique covenant. And third, that God is the one who initiates contact and connection with humanity, and that he himself will provide the passageway in Jesus Christ between heaven and earth, that he reveals himself most fully in us, to us, in the person of Jesus Christ. This revelation of Jacob foreshadows the true revelation of God to us made full in Christ. So all of this, you think that Jacob just experienced all of this, the reassurance, the novel understanding of God's character, the novel vision. Jacob has just been blessed totally beyond his comprehension, totally undeserving. He should be super grateful for this, right? Well, his response is lackluster. Despite all of this, look at the way that Jacob responds to God's covenant. So God promises to do all of these things to include Jacob, Jacob, in response, still places conditions on his allegiance to God. Jacob is still the wrestler, the heel grabber, the manipulator, the haggler, the negotiator, even after God has graced him with this revelation. So in the same way that his famished brother Esau came to him for food, Jacob offered him food, but only conditionally. He's offering his allegiance to God conditionally in the similar way. So by all standards, he's a pretty bad person, right? He's not being radically changed by this experience. Look at specifically God's language that he uses when he promises to Jacob. It's other-centered. I am the Lord your God. I will give to you. I am with you. I will not leave you until I've done what I have spoken. Contrast that with Jacob's vow. If God will be with me and keep me in this way that I'm going and give me bread and give me clothing and bring me safely back to my father's house, then I will serve him and give him my allegiance. So God has given himself fully and committed himself to Jacob, despite his being completely undeserving. And Jacob's response is that not of falling on his face, remorseful, repentant, totally in awe of God's grace, but he still puts conditions on God and offers his allegiance and loyalty only conditionally. So God has, not made, God has no obligation to include Jacob in the covenant, or anybody else for that matter. Any inclusion is grace. It's special grace. It's undeserved. And yet Jacob is still defiant and trying to haggle with God. But in this respect, we are all like Jacob. Because despite all of what God has done for us, all of the work that he's done for us, all of the promises that he has uh, offered to us about what he's going to do in the future, we still place conditions on our allegiance to him. That we will follow him only if X. That we will follow him and make our allegiance to him only conditional on success or relationships or health or status or even spiritual well-being. But God owes none of this to us. God is owed our allegiance despite anything else that he has offered us. And yet even though he owes us nothing, he has given us everything. He's given us everything in himself. Sometimes we think of God's saving for us, God's story of redemption, God's plan of salvation as simply God saving us by dying on the cross. And while that's true, it misses an important element of the incarnation. It is that, but it's also much more. God literally gives himself to us in the incarnation. In God becoming human, it is the actual self-giving of God. He condescends to us and gifts himself to us, not just revelation, not just salvation, but he gives us himself. And that should be sufficient. His giving of himself should be worthy or worth silencing or haggling and our negotiating and our placing conditions on God. So Jacob's response is not a good one. We shouldn't be like Jacob in this regard. So instead of Jacob's defiant spirit, 
Let's exemplify a spirit more in tune with the way God wants us to live, a spirit of gratitude exemplified in the words of the prophet Habakkuk. In Habakkuk 3.17, Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer. He makes me tread on my high places. So despite the lack, despite material unavailability, despite sickness, despite unmet expectations, despite lack of material success, we still have more than enough in God's presence. God himself is sufficient for us. And that's a lesson that Jacob still didn't learn, but hopefully it's one that we will learn today. That placing conditions on God insults God because it's the lack of acknowledgement of all, all that he already has done for us in Christ and all that he has promised to do for us in the future as well. That placing conditions on God insults God by failing to trust that God will deliver on his promises for us, that God will be there for us, and that God will protect us and begin what he began, or finish what he began in us when he saved us. That placing conditions on God is telling God that he is insufficient for us, that I will only serve you or give you my allegiance if you do this for me. And that is an unwarranted attitude. It's one that fails to recognize what God has done, fails to recognize who God is. So today, this is our call as a church, that may we be a church that recognizes and lives in the sufficiency of Christ. And one who, a church that trusts God's promises for us, believing that he does all things for our good, and believing that he withholds no good thing from us. And so we can say with the prophet Habakkuk that even though the fig tree fails to blossom, and there's no fruit on the vines, or even when there's no toilet paper at the Publix, that he is enough, and that regardless of material outcomes, that Christ is sufficient for us, that he is enough. May this be our call as a church today. Let's pray.